This is It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. Welcome to 500. Five hundred years ago, the world was a very different place. There weren't any cars or airplanes, no trains, no buses, no computers. There was no radio, no television, no internet. There was no plastic, no cardboard, no United States. There was no Taj Mahal. There was no junk food, no x-rays, no antibiotics, no vaccines. There was no anesthetic. Smoking was virtually unknown. No GMOs, no cameras, no newspapers. It was a different world. Now think about this. There was no Baptist church 500 years ago. No Pentecostal church. There were no Presbyterians, no Methodists, no Seventh-day Adventists, no Church of England or Episcopal Church. In fact, there was only one church. Then, as now, it was led by a pope. The popes 500 years ago were men like Leo X, Adrian VI, Clement VII, Paul III, Julius III, and Marcellus II. And they weren't only leaders of the church, but they were also immensely powerful political figures. Or to put it another way, 500 years ago, there was no religious freedom. You could attend church, listen to the priest, maybe hear the organ music, but you couldn't believe what you wanted to believe. And you definitely couldn't read a Bible. You believed what the church told you to believe. And if you dared to do otherwise, well, life was difficult at best. Now, down through the ages, there were those who dissented, but they existed in the shadows. It was only a tiny minority that dared to stand up against the might of the church. Five hundred years ago, it was tough if you didn't agree with the church. If you wanted to believe what you believed, you either had to be very secretive about it or run the risk of being uncovered, persecuted, and more than likely killed. If you value religious freedom today, the freedom to belong to the church you want and to believe what you believe, or even the freedom to belong to no church and believe there is no God, then consider that a few centuries ago, that freedom didn't exist. But all that would change. In 1517, on October the 31st, a priest in a small town in Germany changed Western civilization and risked his life by defying the power of the ruling church. His contribution to history was so immense the Time magazine ranked him fourth on the list of the greatest men of the millennium. Looking at those ranked above him, it's easy to think he should have been ranked number one. 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation began when a young priest turned academic by the name of Dr. Martin Luther nailed a list of protests to the door of this church in Wittenberg, Germany. When he did so, he didn't realize he was about to set history on fire. He had no intention of starting a new church. All Martin Luther wanted to see was his church come closer to the Bible. He was calling for reform. 
Bound up in the genesis of the Protestant Reformation, several very important questions. To begin with, how important is it that a person have that right to determine for himself or herself what to believe? 500 years ago, you believed what the church told you to believe. Beyond that, you didn't have much of anything. How important is it that you choose for yourself what you think and what you believe? Second, when it comes to what you believe, think about that question that Pilate asked Jesus the night before Jesus was crucified. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Today, you'll hear that people have their truth. I have my truth. You have your truth. What is truth? And how do you decide? Is truth subject to a vote? Should there be a, a court of ideas? How do you decide? Is there a standard by which ideas or truths can be objectively judged? And what's truth worth? What is the freedom to believe actually worth? How far do you press this? When is it worth becoming a troubler of the people? And is there ever a time that the freedom to believe your own ideas is something that's actually worth dying for? You know, when you think of a person's deeply held personal beliefs, you could dismiss that as just ideas, theories. But what we know is that a person's deeply held personal beliefs provide the framework for that person's entire life, and they certainly form that person's faith. In looking at the Protestant Reformation, it's important that you go back and consider the foundation of Christianity altogether. Reform today typically means new ideas, whether you're dealing with political, cultural, social, or religious reform. It's about finding something new, whatever's next, but not the way God sees it. As God looks at reform, typically he calls us back. He calls us back to old ideas, to things that he has established already. Speaking for God, the prophet Jeremiah said this, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you shall find rest for your souls. Jeremiah 6.16 the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, formed the basis of the early Christian church. The Apostle Paul, writing to young Timothy, said that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. The consuming passion of the early Christians, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of humanity, was said by Paul to rest upon the Scriptures. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. The New Testament teaching of justification by faith, a central focus of the Protestant Reformation, is also said by Paul to rest upon Scripture. Listen to what he said in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation 
for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17. What was clear to the founders of the Christian religion is that the message they shared was the word of the eternal God. When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 When certain individuals got it in their heads that the church had to be reformed, and when they chose to put their lives on the line to see that it happened, things were going to get exciting. I'll be back with more in just a moment. This is It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. Thanks for joining me for 500. Now think of some of the great reform movements of history. The civil rights movement in the United States. Lunch counter sit-ins, bus boycotts, protest marches. Where would the United States be today without those heroes who stood up boldly and demanded reform? Many lost their lives. Was it worth it? The fall of European communism in the early 1990s, starting with Lech Wałęsa and the Solidarity Movement, and desperate East Germans who wanted to see the Berlin Wall come down, and Czechs who protested in Wenceslas Square. Was that worth it? The Boston Tea Party in 1773. Of course, the list goes on. Sometimes, protest is absolutely essential. A protest about taxation without representation. Yeah, that's important. Your country is occupied. Well, that's important too. You don't like your system of government. You feel like you're being oppressed. Well, most of us can only imagine. But the Protestant Reformation was on an altogether different level. Christianity began with people such as Peter and James and John and Paul and Silas and Timothy carrying forward the message of the gospel. But after a few centuries, that message began to get clouded. When the Roman Empire officially accepted Christianity and called off its persecution of the church, faith in Jesus became popular 
Unfortunately, it also became corrupt. Jesus had warned his disciples, saying to them in Luke 6 and verse 26, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Instead of the Bible deciding what Christians should believe, church councils and bishops, even Roman emperors like Constantine began making these decisions. Now, of course, not all of those decisions were bad, but more and more these human judgments began subverting the authority of the Bible. Church tradition began to hold veto power over Scripture. Jesus' words regarding the Pharisees of his day began to hold more and more relevance. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15, 9. In the centuries that followed the so-called conversion of Constantine, this reliance on human ideas and human traditions became more and more pronounced. Those who wanted to follow the Bible were forced to go underground. The Vatican became more and more powerful, effectively governing the lives and the souls and the political institutions of Europe. No pope was more powerful than Pope Innocent III, who reigned from 1198 to 1216, a period that's been referred to as the high noon of the papacy. A leading Protestant historian, J.A. Wiley, wrote that the noon of the papacy was the midnight of the world. Innocent III was able to compel the monarchs of Europe to do his will. At times, he deposed those who would not. One weapon that the church had in its arsenal was something known as interdict. A territory that was censured with an interdict was made to believe that the priests would not hear confession, prayers would not be offered for the dead, and the sacraments of the church would not be dispensed. Now, for anybody who actually believed that the Pope held the keys to God's kingdom, this was absolutely terrifying. They were effectively shut out from the grace of God. Now, this was the mindset that had existed for hundreds of years and which greeted the Protestant reformers at the beginning of the 16th century. John Wycliffe, the English scholar who translated the Latin Bible into English in the 1300s, is often called the morning star of the Reformation. Wycliffe spoke against what he saw as the inaccuracies of the state church. Church leaders in Rome summoned him to stand trial, intending to end his life. He got sick and died before he could be tried, but Wycliffe's work was done. But such was the animosity of the church towards him that his body was exhumed and it was burned and his ashes were dumped in a river. Wycliffe's teachings were carried forward by a Bohemian priest named John Huss. The church summoned Huss to a council in Constance, Germany and promised him protection. Huss arrived in Constance and was arrested, thrown into a horrible prison, sentenced to death and was then burned at the stake. But as one historian wrote, the blood of the martyrs was seed. The persecution the reformers suffered only seemed to further their cause. And the need for reform seemed obvious. The luxury and the depravity indulged in by church leaders was breathtaking. It's no secret that there were popes who fathered illegitimate children. Church offices were bought and sold. And the luxurious lifestyle of church leaders was out of sync with the self-denial of Jesus. 
Speaking of the corruption of that time, one historian wrote that the advance of the Turks since the fall of Constantinople in 1453 was generally considered to have been allowed by God in punishment for the sins of the church. The Christian church was certainly ready for a change. But how would that change come about? We'll find out in just a moment. In Matthew 4.4, the Word of God says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every Word is a one-minute Bible-based daily devotional presented by Pastor John Bradshaw and designed especially for busy people like you. Look for Every Word on selected networks or watch it online every day on our website, itiswritten.com. Receive a daily spiritual boost. Watch Every Word. You'll be glad you did. Here's a sample. After he was arrested, a New York man confessed to six burglaries in the borough of Queens. He broke into churches and stole from them. He said he did it because I'm mad at God. I don't like church anymore. I break in to get back at God. Get back at God. After all God has done for you, brought you into existence, sustained you, gave you opportunity, and promised you everlasting life in a world where there's no sin, disappointment, or broken dreams. You can't get back at God. If you want to get back at anyone, that'd be the devil who is responsible for every ounce of misery that's ever existed. Jesus said in John 5 verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. If you want to right wrongs, come to faith in Christ. Staying away from God only plays into the devil's hands. I'm John Bradshaw for It Is Written. Let's live today by every word. One hundred years after the death of Huss, a young German priest by the name of Martin Luther found himself in the city of Rome, seeking to earn God's favor by climbing on his knees up Pilate's staircase. The church claimed that Jesus himself had walked on that staircase and that it had been miraculously transported from Jerusalem to Rome. While performing this act, Luther seemed to hear a voice as loud as thunder, declaring in his ear the gospel truth articulated by both testaments of the sacred word. The just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17, Habakkuk 2 verse 4. So why was Luther walking up a staircase on his knees? Because Luther believed that climbing those steps would earn favor with God. And why did Luther believe that? Because that's what the church taught. The church taught that you could reduce your punishment for sin, that you could lessen the temporal effects of sin by doing things such as attending a certain church on a certain day, honoring the blessed sacrament, praying the rosary, or climbing the Scala Santa, Pilate's staircase, on your knees. In fact, the church still believes this. Here's what the church says about indulgences. An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, 
which as the minister of redemption dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. So you can understand why Luther felt he had to do something. The church was teaching salvation by works. In fact, indulgences were sold for money. Money was raised for the building of St. Peter's Basilica through the selling of indulgences. This was Luther's reality. Of course he had to protest. That moment at Pilate's staircase proved to be the turning point in Martin Luther's experience. With that voice still ringing in his heart, he sprang to his feet and fled from the place in shame and horror. Luther's zeal would spark a fire that spread throughout Europe and beyond. From John Calvin's Geneva to William Tyndale's England, from France to Scandinavia and the Netherlands and then to Plymouth Rock on an unknown and distant shore, the message of supreme biblical authority, justification through faith in Christ, and a conscience set free from civil and ecclesiastical control would inspire millions of hearts and alter the course of human events. Luther and others would also teach the principle of sola scriptura, the Bible alone. The reformers believed that any teaching should be subjected to the ultimate authority, God's Word. Now, 500 years later, in much of Christianity, we simply take that for granted. But 500 years ago, no way. That's not the way the church was run. Now, of course, the reformers were human, and human beings are faulty. Martin Luther certainly had his faults. But we must keep in mind that the reformers came to the Bible a lot like an archaeologist comes to an artifact. It was new to them. They had to wrestle with the Bible and work some things out. They didn't have the benefit of hundreds of years of scholarship having gone before them. Now, the truth is, we inherit a lot of what we believe by the people who've gone before us and done the heavy lifting, which is fine as long as what we receive from those who've gone before us is true. In all cases, it's important that we go to the Bible and find out. With the translation of the Bible by Luther and Tyndale and others into German and English and French and Polish and Czech, and with the advent of the printing press, the common people soon had access to God's Word. And when the Bible was put in the hands of Bible students hungry for Scripture, the church and the world could never be the same again. The Church of Rome wasn't about to quietly tolerate an attack on what they genuinely believed was their God-given right to direct the minds and hearts of men and women, to compel them in faith in God, and to correct them when they fell into error. The Counter-Reformation would see Rome fight back, forcefully, creatively, and not always obviously. So what does a church do when its authority is threatened, along with its hold on the minds of the people of the Western world? In Europe, there was a lot of bloodshed. Protestants were burned at the stake. Thousands died in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in France in 1572, and anything resembling toleration disappeared. More than 200,000 fled France. 
The first foreigners to reach what would become the United States of America were Protestants of English descent. But even then, there would be growing pains. The Puritans of New England believed that religious freedom applied to you only if you lived and believed and worshipped as they did. But then along came Roger Williams, who introduced the concept of religious liberty for all. And then the truth would go marching on. Through men like Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich, and John Wesley and his brother Charles in England, through Philip Melanchthon and Thomas Cranmer and Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and Theodore Bezza and John Knox in Scotland, and Husson Jerome and William Farrell and Roger Williams, and many others. So when did the Reformation end? Or has it ended? Perhaps there's still a work to be done, a work of reform, a work of calling people to faithfulness to God and to faith in the Word of God. Throughout the rest of this series, 500, you'll meet some of the great characters of the Reformation. Your faith in God will grow and your personal experience with God will be richly blessed. The book of Revelation makes clear that Babylon will be a major player on the prophetic scene down in the close of time. How do we understand that? Well, that's why I'd like you to have this book. I wrote it, Babylon Rising. To receive it, call us at 800-253-3000 or visit us online at www.itiswritten.com or you can write to the address on your screen. I'd like you to receive our free offer, Babylon Rising. And thanks for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kind support of people just like you. Your donation makes it possible for It Is Written to share life-changing biblical truth with the world. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can support It Is Written through our website, itiswritten.com. Thanks for your generous support. Our number is 800-253-3000, and our web address is itiswritten.com. Let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have preserved your word, that we can possess the Bible, not only in our hands, but in our hearts. And we thank you for Jesus, the one the Bible calls the Word made flesh. As down through the ages, you have guided your truth and guided your word and led your people. I pray that you would guide us now. Friend, do you need to experience a reformation in your heart? Father, as we talk about the reformation from an historical perspective, we recognize we must experience reformation in our lives. So now we pray that you would take our hearts, make them yours. Friend, now is an opportunity for you to yield to God. Would you do that? Our Father, we thank you. As we continue to study in 500, we pray for your blessing. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm looking forward to seeing you again next time. Until then, remember, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.